Let's stand together. We're going to look tonight at the book of Revelation. Part 3, John sees heaven. We're going to get as far as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. As we share these things tonight, I'm going to tell you right now that when it gets into the judgments that God pours out, it is sobering. It's not jump up and shout. It's going to move you to want to go evangelize. It's going to move you to want to go tell people about Jesus. So let's take a look here. We're going to just pray, and then you can be seated, and I'm going to take us into just a brief recap of last week, and then we'll move on tonight as John is taken up into heaven, and the first four seals are opened, and it's powerful. So let's pray together. Father, we just pray for a revelation ourselves tonight, that you'll open our eyes and minister to us, and Lord God, speak to us. Now, would you just breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive your word in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Let's go right into last time we looked at the seven churches to which John initially addresses his revelation to, if you remember last time. Now, here's the seven churches he brought a word to, and they, the description of them, the one-word description, all begins with L, and they're to the right. So let's look. Ephesus was the lacking church. Smyrna was the loyal church. Pergamos was the lax church. Thyatira was the loose church. Sardis was the lifeless church. Remember them? They had the lights on, but there was nobody home. You ever feel that way? All right, Philadelphia was the loving church. And Laodicea, which is, I think, descriptive of the church age of our day, Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Jesus, I'd rather spew you out of my mouth. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're in between, you're walking around the periphery. You got one foot in, one foot out, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God. That's lukewarm. That's our church age. And that's Laodicea. And those are the seven, I believe, not just churches in John's day that he was addressing the revelation to, but it was prophetic of seven different eras that the church would go through, ending up with the lukewarm church, which no doubt in my mind, that's the church of today. All right? Now, we come to chapter 4. And the rapture of John into the throne room of God. This is powerful stuff. Look at this, Revelations 4, verse 1 and 2. Here's John. Man, I mean, he is having a vision. He says, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. Jesus' voice is like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly, says John, I was in the Spirit, caught up in a spiritual revelation. Now, I want you to know something about verse 1. It tells us that what John is about to see and hear is prophetic in nature. It's future telling. He says, I will show you what must happen when, everybody, after this, the future. In chapters 4 and 5, an incredible drama is going to unfold before John's eyes. He's seeing into the future. Only God can show you the future. Only God. You can make your best guess scenario, but only the living God sees the end from the beginning. Before the beginning of something begins, God sees the end. 
So that's how we have the book of Revelation. God knows the end of civilization, the end of humankind as we know it. So this is what he's about to see. Here's what he's going to see. Number one, the absolute sovereign God and the affairs of men. Can you say with me, everybody, God's sovereign. He is sovereign over everything. He's about to see the absolute sovereignty of God. In everything we're about to read, God is sovereign. Second, the absolute authority of Jesus, the Messiah. The earthly authority of Jesus, the Messiah. Satan is not in control of this world. Jesus is. Third thing, amen. The third thing, the providence of God in the coming world tribulation. I know it's hard for us to understand why in the world God would unleash the kind of judgments we're about to see. Why would God do it? Because when you look at Revelations and when you study the Bible cover to cover, New Testament verses galore, you realize that what God is doing is pouring out wrath on a civilization, on a world that if they were given a thousand more years would never repent. They would never repent. Their hearts are hardened. They have taken sin to the ultimate level. They have, in essence, pushed God where God can't be pushed anymore. And finally, God's hand is forced, and the wrath is poured out. It's not just wrath, you know, like God might chasten you and me, but the wrath of God is poured out in the book of Revelation in 21 judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. 21 altogether, different judgments that are stunning, startling, breathtaking, humbling, frightening, sobering. And so God is providential in the coming world tribulation. He's in charge. All right? John is left totally speechless by what he witnesses. First, God is seen as a king on a throne. He sees God as a king sitting on a throne. Revelations 4, 3, the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and sardius, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Remember me telling you that when John would see things, he had to say it was like this or as that. He's got to use like and as all the time because he's seeing heavenly things, and he's seeing some of God's judgments are on a level that there's nothing in the first century when he lived that he could pull up and say, well, this is what would do that. There's no way I can describe this or explain it except to say it was like this or like that. He says, this God that I saw sitting on the throne, man, he was as brilliant, as shining, as glistening as a, a gemstone. Jasper, sorry, well, what do those mean? Jasper was clear crystal stone, and it pictured purity. Sardius was blood red stone, like a ruby, no doubt, picturing the blood of the lamb. Emerald, light green stone, always depicts, in the book of Revelation particularly, majesty and royalty. So this God sitting on the throne, providential over the affairs of men, pictured purity, the blood of the Lamb, and majesty. And Revelations verse 4 and chapter 4 says 24 thrones surrounded him. 24 thrones are surrounding God's throne. 
and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. Well, who in the world is this? Well, the best explanation for the 24 elders is they represent the redeemed believers worshiping before God. That means you and me represented in these 24. In the Old Testament, the priesthood was divided into 24 divisions. In this current church age, each believer is a priest before God. You are a priest before God. What did a priest do? He offered up sacrifices to him. As we worship tonight, we were in a priesthood offering up sacrifices of praise to God. All of these 24 elders, it says, were dressed in white, a picture of redemption. The crowns they wear are a picture of rewards and authority. The Bible tells us five crowns are given out to the faithful believer. Crown of the soul winner, the crown of the faithful pastor, so on and so forth. These crowns are rewards and they depict authority as well. And since this is future, here they are in heaven worshiping God. Are you ready? We can draw the conclusion that the church is in heaven just prior to the tribulation about to break forth on the earth. Because what did the angel say to John? He said, come up here. And John looked and he sees the king on the throne, God. And then he sees these 24 elders dressed in white surrounding the throne. And there they are before the great tribulation takes place and before the judgments begin to fall. So this is one of the first hints that you and I will not be here when the great tribulation, the real tribulation, the seven-year tribulation of hell on earth begins, we will be in heaven enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now look at verse 5 of chapter 4. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. The lightning and thunder John experienced represents the awesome judgment and righteousness of the presence of God. Amen. God is about to bring judgment, and the lightning and the thunder are foretaste of what's about to come. Verse 6 says, in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. So powerful. On this little picture we've got up here. See right in front there, it looks like a shiny sea of glass. This is a picture. This is a symbol. What does it mean? The sea of glass represented eternity. One of the most permanent substances to the ancients was glass. Everything else rusted, fell apart, or eroded, but not glass. And God's sovereign throne room is eternal. Our God never began. He never ends. You began, but you won't ever end. But our God had no beginning. Our Jesus had no beginning. The Holy Spirit had no beginning. The angels had a beginning. They were created. But God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were never created. So his throne depicts eternity. Verses 6 through 8 say, In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. Wow, we're getting in some heavy. Here comes Steven Spielberg. And it's like a Star Wars bar scene right here. But not hardly, because these are the wonderful creatures created by God, 
Now look what it says. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. Everybody say lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. So you got a lion, ox, human, eagle represented here. Each of these living beings had six wings, each of them. And their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Wow. These angelic beings, John sees, each have varied personalities. The lion represents authority, king of beasts. The ox or the calf represents meekness. The man, though it's hard to believe sometimes, represents intelligence. And the flying eagle, what does that represent? Transcendent strength. You will mount up with wings like an eagle. Run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. Transcendent strength. The six wings, moving swiftly, represents that these are God's couriers doing His bidding and will. These are God's FedEx creatures doing His will, doing His bidding. Interestingly, in Matthew, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. In Mark, he's the humble servant like the ox. In Luke, he's the perfect man, the intelligence, the perfect man. And in John, his deity is stressed, symbolized by the flying eagle in John's vision. Now, Revelations 4, 9 through 11. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, what happens when they give thanks? It says the 24 elders fall down and they worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne. And what do they say? I want you to say this with me, everybody. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. And if you don't like worship, you're in trouble because all that's happening in heaven is worship. Powerful stuff. So chapter 4 concludes with a huge worship session. I'm telling you, folks, that's what's going on in heaven all the time. Worship. They worship the Lord. Everything in heaven is praising God. And whatever men and angels have or receive from God, they will ultimately cast at His feet in praise Whatever crown God gives you, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to give it back. You're going to lay it at his feet and say, I'm not worthy. I worship you. Everything I have, I want to give it to you because you are worthy and worthy is the Lamb. As the awesome descriptions of heavenly scenes continue, John records as we go into chapter 5 and verse 1. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of this scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. Now it's about to get real serious. Now it's about to get real serious. All this worship, all this praise, but now it's about to get real serious. Because here's this scroll, and there's seven seals sealing this scroll. But a predicament arises. When he sees this scroll and the seven seals, there is nobody in heaven or on earth, who is worthy to open the book and the seals. 
Not one person in the universe can be found worthy. John, in his vision, is made intensely aware that this scroll needs to be opened. And it wipes him out that there's not a soul worthy to break the seals. I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice. Verses 2 through 4. And the angel shouted, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or even under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then what did John begin to do? It was so sobering, he began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. Now, he's overwhelmed with the fact that nobody's clean enough, nobody's pure enough, nobody's holy enough to open the book. But right about then, one of those 24 elders, a representative of the redeemed church, steps forward and preaches Jesus. <laughs> he says, Revelations 5, verse 5, he says, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And this is just like the curtain rising on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a huge revelation. It sweeps heaven. And it's a great, great moment for the reality of who Jesus is here. Now, here's the application. And you need to understand this as we move on in now to these seals being opened. Only Christ Jesus is qualified to supervise the end-time judgments found in the mysterious scroll. Only Jesus is worthy to supervise what is about to take place. Christ appears not as the lion, but as the Lamb of God, and he takes the book into his hands, the scroll with the seven seals. He takes it. And the Lamb is described as having. Now, they showed me this picture, and it looks like a cloning mistake. But this is really what is described. And so look what it says. It says the lamb is described as having seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. That's how the lamb is described. Well, what does this mean? Because it's all symbology. It's symbolism. It means something. What does it mean? Horns are always a symbol of power and strength. Spirits... The seven spirits are the seven manifestations of God's wisdom in order that he might accurately judge. He will judge the world in righteousness, and he will judge the world in wisdom, and he will judge the world with equity and fairness. And the seven eyes represent complete, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent wisdom, perfect wisdom, because seven is the number of perfection. So he has perfect wisdom, perfect power, to judge the earth. Within the scroll are seven seals. And this is the beginning of God's awesome judgments on a Christ-rejecting world. And this judgment begins in chapter 6 with what we know as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, as with chapter 4, chapter 5 ends with an incredible worship session. And it says in verses 8 through 14, when he took the scroll, the four living beings... And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Here we go again, worship in heaven. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense. And what are those incense, everybody? 
the prayers of God's people. When you pray, those prayers are literally preserved and reserved in heaven. They speak way after you're gone. And here's those prayers in a bowl, and it's the prayers of God's people, and here comes a new song, and I want you to read this with me good and loud. Preach to me. Let's read it now. It says, they sang a new song with these words. Ready? Go. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Give God praise. Amen. Then look what John says. He says, then I looked again. Here he is in the Spirit having an incredible spiritual vision. And I heard the voices of thousands. Listen to this. Thousands and millions, literally a vast angelic choir of 100 million Now there's a choir, 100 million. Can you imagine that? 100, that's a third of America. And then thousands of thousands more. And what are they doing? Of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty sevenfold acclamation of praise to the Lamb chorus. Say it with me. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang. This is the creatures. What they sing? Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. And chapter 5 is over with. Look at all that worship right before judgment falls. All right, now we're going to go into chapter 6. The seven seals are opened. Chapters 6 through 19 vividly describe and predict the Great Tribulation. The Tribulation occupies 14 of the 22 chapters of the book. The Great Tribulation. The Tribulation is also called the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament. It's the climactic era in God's plan for the ages. It's the seven final years of civilization as we know it. The great tribulation. The day of the Lord. And with so much else in Revelation, the tribulation is marked with a seven. It's going to last exactly seven years. We will see in the great tribulation that Satan, under God's permissive hand, is allowed to bring his evil forces to the earth. With the restraining hand of God no longer withholding his efforts. God will lift his hand for a season. And you'll see what Satan's really like. The destroyer that he is. The thief, the liar, and the murderer that he is. You'll see it when God lifts his hand. Because that's what happens in the tribulation. That's why you don't want to be here in the tribulation. And you don't want your loved ones here in the tribulation. There will be people saved in the tribulation, but they'll be hunted, sought out, and martyred. And we're going to see this in this series. 
So the time to come to Christ is now. Grace is now. Thank God we're in the hour of grace now. But the great tribulation, if I understand prophecy at all, seems to me to be right at the door. All the chess pieces lined up, every nation coming into place. So we're going to see that, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord. Paul predicted this very thing in 2 Thessalonians 2. He said, don't be fooled by what they say, the naysayers. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness, Antichrist, is revealed. The one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself. This is Antichrist. He'll exalt himself and defy everything that people call God, and he will defy every object of worship, Antichrist. The antithesis of Jesus. Jesus was God's son. Antichrist is Satan's son. He will even sit in the temple of God in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He will sit in the temple of God, the rebuilt temple, claiming that he is God. Paul says, don't you remember I told you about all this when I was with you and you know what is holding him back. For he can be revealed only when his time comes comes. What is holding Antichrist back? The Spirit of the Lord and I believe the church. The Spirit of the Lord and the church are restraining Antichrist from being revealed. But there will come a time when the church is gone and God will say, all right, and he will let the Antichrist be exposed. But until then, he's restrained. Understand? Now, we'll get into this much more later. Here comes the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the beginning of the judgments. Revelation 6.1, John says, as I watched, the lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, come. Remember the four living creatures around God's throne with the attributes of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. They're all about to take part in these first four seals. The first beast that is lion-like has just cried out, come. And John says, I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow, and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. He looks successful. He is successful for a season. The white horse. Roman generals rode white horses. Most scholars believe this is the Antichrist. He will have authority depicted by the crown. The crown represents authority. He'll have authority, but will conquer as the good guy at first. That's why he's on a white horse. The Bible is telling us Antichrist will have an appearance of being good and doing good things and of being a victor, a protector, and a conqueror on behalf of the people. So he comes over as a good guy. He looks like Christ in the sense that it seems that he has a power. It seems that he has the ability to make things happen that are almost supernatural. Arnold Toynbee said something worth quoting. He said, quote, By forcing on mankind more and more lethal weapons and at the same time making the whole world more and more interdependent economically, Technology has brought mankind to such a degree of stress 
that we are ripe for deifying any new Caesar that might succeed in giving the world unity and peace. So the rider of the white horse represents the arrival of the Antichrist and what he will do, and we'll get into this much more later, what he will do, he will solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's what he'll do. That's why it looks like he's on a white horse. That is the world problem he will solve and conquer for a brief season. Finally, it'll be done. It'll be done by him. It won't be done until him. Revelation 6.3 says, After the Lamb breaks the second seal, the second living creature with the attributes of a calf cries out, Come! First seal, white horse Antichrist. Second seal, verse 4. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. The red horse is the horse of war. The horse that follows testifies to the fact that Antichrist's peace with Israel and the Palestinians is only temporary because it will end in the worst war in the history of the world, the War of Armageddon, which makes all other wars, even the world wars, look like playtime almost. During the 20th century, two major world wars have engulfed the globe, involving dozens of nations and resulting in the deaths of millions. But after the rapture of the church, the world will be plunged into a conflict without parallel. With the release of this horse, the greatest war in the history of mankind will take place. It will take place in the Valley of Megiddo in Israel, the War of Armageddon. It will culminate in the Battle of Armageddon, which if not stopped by the return of Christ, would leave no flesh alive. Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved or spared. Jesus warned, here it is, for then there will be great tribulation. He's talking about this seven years, the great tribulation. There will be affliction, distress, and oppression, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be again, which is a stunning statement because if you know the hell of World War I, World War II, horrible. But Jesus said, this one in the Great Tribulation will be worse than all of the others. He says, if those days had not been shortened, no human being would endure and survive. But for the sake of the elect, God's chosen ones, those days will be shortened. He actually will appear in the second coming and stop that war. Revelation 6, 5 through 6, it says, When the Lamb broke the third seal, so you got the white horse, Antichrist, red horse, war. Now the third seal, I heard the third living being with the attributes of a man say, Come, I looked up and saw a black horse. And its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings say, A loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. And don't waste the oil and the wine. Think about that. A loaf of bread or three loaves of barley, a day's pay. That's the black horse. The black horse represents famine. Again, remember, this is the seven years the Great Tribulation, the beginning of the judgments. And this is the third of 21. Clearly, massive inflation is suggested here if one must work an entire day to pay for a loaf of bread. 
Oil and wine, oil and wine are luxuries, not necessities, but luxuries. Oil would represent your toiletries, beauty aids, body conditioners. The wine corresponds to the liquor that will be in abundance because people will not be able to handle what is happening on the earth and will be turning to alcohol to numb the pain. It is possible that John is describing the total breakdown of a middle class, which I believe he is. The middle class will disappear. There will be a few rich with a vast majority stricken with famine. Today, 1%, 1% of the American population has accumulated over 40% of the nation's wealth. This is a sign of the last times. Even now, more than a billion people are on the brink of starvation right now. Right now, a billion on the brink of starving. The reality is that out of 180 or so nations around the world, only four, the U.S., Canada, France, and Argentina, adequately feed their populace. But after such a horrific war, famine will be even worse. When the red horse of war rise, the black horse of famine will be right on its heels. And they'll be sitting around going, boy, times are tough right now. And they will not be realizing that Jesus, can I say it tonight, is orchestrating this. It's judgment. Well, Pastor Jeff, that doesn't sound like the Jesus I love. He's not just the Lamb of God. He's the Lion of Judah. And he is God. And God judges sin. There are consequences for sin. And the great tribulation is the ultimate consequence. Let's move on. Then finally, John sees the fourth seal. So you got white horse, red horse, black horse. Now look at this one. The fourth seal is open, and when the Lamb breaks the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being with attributes of an eagle say, Come. And I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over how much of the earth? Wow. One-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, famine, and disease, and wild animals. Now, you say, well, what about the wild animals? This occurred to me, getting ready for this. Remember in Genesis when God said to Adam and Eve, the wild animals are going to be afraid of you. I will put the fear of you on all the creatures of the earth. That's why when you walk up to the birds, they fly away from you. When you go up to most wild animals, they flee from you. That's why you've got to gain the trust of most wild animals because there is a natural fear that God put in them and it was a result of the curse put on Adam and Eve for sin. It seems to me that God will lift that and the wild animals won't be afraid anymore. And so it says, with sword, famine, disease, and wild animals, a fourth of the earth will be killed. The pale horse, the fourth horseman is called death and rides a pale horse. The Greek reads hippos chloros. And that's the word from which we get cholera. The pale horse is plague. I told you it was going to be an oh me and not an amen. Y'all sure look somber. Can you look up and say, thank you, Jesus, I'm saved. Because this is coming, y'all. This world is not evolving into a better place. It's devolving into a worse place and headed to judgment. You can't get away from that. 
The evolutionists are not telling you the truth. None of that is the truth. God created the world, and we are not on an upward evolutionary climb. We are on a downward de-evolutionary or a descent into judgment. And there's no way around it. Sin must be judged. The pale horse is plagued. John saw a stunning catastrophe. Think about this. When this fourth horse rides, one-fourth of the earth's population will be wiped out in quick succession. It'll happen with the sword, war, with hunger, famine, and with death, pestilence, and with the beasts of the earth. If that happened in America, that would mean 75 million. And that's just the beginning. These aren't the worst. The worst are the bold judgments, which are the last seven. They're the worst. This is just getting started. The worst plague in history, if you remember, was the Black Plague. I've studied that a lot. fascinated me during the Middle Ages. It killed one-fourth of Europe in the 14th century. Over 25 million people died. But two-thirds of the infected lived. It stopped after around a century. For a century, the Black Plague raged in Europe. But this will only take a few years. John predicts that a plague will come that will wipe out one-fourth of not just Europe, but the entire world. It's possible that the pestilence will take the form of germ or biological warfare. I think that's highly possible. They are concocting those things. They already have them ready. There are people that have germ and biological weaponry now. Smallpox and all kinds of different plagues are in vials and in keeping and in hiding now, right now. We don't know what exactly does it, only that it it does indeed take place. And during the release of these dreaded horsemen of the apocalypse, 25% of the earth will be destroyed. One out of every four human beings will die. As God says, that's it. You mocked me, ridiculed me, rebelled against me, stiffened your neck against me, refused to repent, refused to turn, refused to bow your knee, refused to acknowledge my son. And I know that if I left you here for another thousand years, you would not repent. We see that because as these judgments begin to fall, John sees in the Spirit that the people of the earth look up and begin to curse God instead of repenting. If grace has touched you and your heart has been softened by Christ and the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, do you know how blessed you are? This is a horrific scene we're reading about. John has painted a magnificent portrait of the closing of civilization. Keep in mind that these things are falling on a Christ-rejecting, godless, and unrepentant world. Thank God there's still time to respond to His amazing grace. Now, if you look in front of you, some of you will see a green card in front of you. If there's one in front of you, a green card, grab it. If there's one in front of you, just grab it. And I'm going to wait till I see the last person moving. If there's one in front of you, Green card. Grab it. We got them? Now, those of you with the green card, stand up. Look around you. This is a fourth. 
This is a fourth of this crowd. This is a fourth. We did this to give you a visual idea of what it means when God says a fourth of the earth's population will die. A fourth of this crowd. That's not a bad confession over you. Some of you put that car down. Let's stand together, can we? Now, next week, the next three seals are open. We just saw the first four of 21. Next week, cosmic chaos. Believe me when I tell you, the hour of grace is coming to a close. And this world is headed towards not a better utopia, but really a nightmare ending interrupted by the return of the Messiah. And I'm going to ask us to bow for a moment. Would you bow with me? You know, I, I teach this and I study this and I get ready for this. I say, oh God, to not be saved, to not know Jesus, to be out there adrift and not know you, headed towards something like this, would just be the worst thing I could imagine. I said, Lord, I'm not even going to let Wednesday night go unless I give somebody an opportunity to say, Jesus, I need you in my heart. You may have been brought here by a friend. You may have used to walk with the Lord real close, but you've drifted. And you know God's calling you. You know he's knocking on the door of your heart. You know he's speaking to you. I tell you tonight that now is the hour to say, Lord, I'm here fully. I give you my heart, my life. I want to walk with you. I want to do your will. I want to experience your blessing on my life. You've drifted, but you know the Lord's been calling you back. Or maybe you've never had the miracle of being born again, born from above, where you knew that you knew that you knew that Jesus was in your heart. If you're in either one of those two categories, would you let me pray with you tonight? What a great time in this Revelation series to just say, Lord, I need to get right need to get right and leave this building with the peace of God in your heart. If you can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm in one of those two categories and I will let you pray for me. Would you lift your hand right where you are? Bless you. Lift them high. Bless you. Put them up high. God bless you. Now I want to do something. I want to ask you if your hand is raised. I want you to slip out from where you are and I want you to come and stand in front of me right here. Don't worry about what anybody thinks. We've all been where you are. Well, why do I need to come down? Because something happens when you take a step towards God. Something happens. It's an act of faith. The minute you take a step, the Lord is with you. So I want you to come now. And we're going to sing just one or two stanzas of a song, and I'm going to wait just a moment. But you come, take advantage of the hour of grace. You come now in Jesus' name. Come now.